Voyage. If you'll recall, last time, the authorities were in hot pursuit of Jason's assailant. Or at least it seemed so. Here's Jason. Historically, there has never been a treaty between Texas and Mexico pertaining to criminal behavior, whether one country can extradite a suspected criminal to their country. And so it's always been if you made it across the river either way, if you'd committed a crime in Texas and made it back into Mexico or you had committed a crime in Mexico and made it back to Texas, you were pretty much home free unless the authorities in Mexico would release you under the terms of hot pursuit, which meant the crime had just been committed, law enforcement was chasing the perpetrator across the border then you could legally bring that person back into Texas. But in my situation, it had been long enough after the crime that uh, the perpetrator had made it not only across the Rio Grande, but uh, several miles into Mexico. And uh, law enforcement had followed once they found my truck on the Texas side of the river. They went over into Mexico, but apparently too much time had elapsed. So it was not considered hot pursuit. And the Mexican officials would not release him to Texas law enforcement. And he was taken down the river to the nearest city, Ojinaga, and incarcerated in the jail in Ojinaga. While all this was going on, Jason was dealing with the practical challenges of resuming her life after this crime. In the days and weeks following the kidnapping and rape, my days were filled primarily with terror and increasingly with anger. These are behaviors that are not inconsistent with victims who have been through a traumatic ordeal. I felt that I could not go back to my home in Terlingua, and so I rented an apartment in Alpine. And fortunately, there was one available right next door to where Billy Pat and his wife had their apartment in Alpine. And so it was quite a bit of comfort to feel that I lived right next door to the best tracker in Texas and a great law enforcement officer. Hypervigilance is one characteristic of someone who's been traumatized. And so I could not be in my apartment or anywhere if sound was masked. For example, if I was trying to vacuum my apartment, I, I couldn't do so because the sound of the vacuum would negate anyone coming in. And I decided that the thing to do would be to purchase a firearm. Of course, I had no training in firearms. I didn't know anything about firearms, but I went to the store in Alpine that sold firearms and decided that the easiest gun for a novice to use was a revolver. Very easy to load. You just spin the cartridge, put the bullets in, point and click. That's the extent of what I knew about guns. And although I had forgiven this man that night out in the desert, a sense of anger 
was beginning to just envelop anything that I did. I was angry at all males. I didn't even want to talk to a male. I, I could barely talk to my son. It was sort of a blanket condemnation of uh, men everywhere as being brutes. And um, as, as the problems increased, and I was seeing a therapist, even though I was assured that feeling angry was a perfectly legitimate way to feel, considering what I had been through, I started fantasizing about how I could uh, shoot this man if I ever saw him. And eventually, we were called to Mexico to give a statement to the jail officials and the town officials there in Ohinaga about why they were holding this man. The sheriff contacted me and said that he and his deputy would take me to Ohinaga and they would stay with me during the whole process of talking to these officials. The deputy sheriff who went with us was married to a Mexican woman and he was fluent in Spanish and English. So he was going to be our interpreter. They set the date and the time and cautioned me that, of course, you cannot take any firearms into Mexico. It's immediate prison sentence. Even law enforcement cannot take their firearms into Mexico. Despite this warning, Jason decided to bring her gun. Great, now's my chance. I will put this 38 Special that I bought in my purse. Nobody's going to check my purse. I'd been to Ohinaga so many times, never with a firearm, but never had I been questioned or asked about what was in my purse. And so even though the sheriff had told me not to, I guess I was feeling so rebellious and so angry that uh, I actually thought they might bring this man into the room where I was to be giving my statement. And then I would simply pull out my gun and shoot him dead. A huge fantasy about emptying the complete chamber into this man. Because by this point, I really had no faith that he would be prosecuted either in Mexico or Texas. The reason I felt this way was because many of my friends told me that the crime of sexual assault and rape was viewed differently in Mexico. It was just as prevalent as it was anywhere. But in Mexico, the victim was presumed to have a father and uncles and brothers and possibly a husband who would take care of the problem. It shouldn't even reach the judicial level. Well, I didn't have any such support system and if I had, they wouldn't have, have done anything about this. It's not part of our culture. And so I thought probably it will never come to trial. But I went ahead and uh, went to Ohinaga with the sheriff and the deputy to give my statement. As many buildings are in small cities like Ohinaga, this one was made of concrete uh, with wide, huge rooms, concrete steps. We were directed to go up to the second level and escorted into a room where there were three chairs and the chairs were facing a table with 
a typewriter sitting on the table and several chairs behind that table. At this point, it dawned on me that I would be the lone female in a room talking with two of my deputy sheriffs and however many Mexican officials walked in. And I started to get really nervous and really feeling that I wish I had some female support with me. But that was not the case and pretty soon the officials walked in. There were several of them, four I think. They were scowling. They did not have good expressions on their face. I felt like they were already judging me and uh, considering me to be some sort of loose woman or however they might put it in their vernacular and uh, I did not feel comfortable at all. So we made the introductions and they began to ask questions. So as I was telling them what happened, the only name I had for this man was Teamu, which means I love you. And that is the name he gave me that night to call him. And he said, just, you know, call me Teamu. And so I was referring to him with that name while talking to the officials. And um, at this point, one official became enraged and yelled at me, don't call him that. His name is Refugio Gardea Gonzalez and you will refer to him as such. Well, I'm not used to being spoken to in that tone and in that manner and being dictated to and having something demanded of me and it infuriated me. So I yelled back, don't tell me what I can and can't say. And I probably called him a name, I don't remember. But I was furious and said, that is the name that the son of a bitch gave me to call him. Of course, by this time, the interpreter the deputy sheriff who was interpreting all this was getting pretty nervous and trying to probably cover up my demeanor and make my response a little softer. And probably the officials spoke English perfectly well. But when this Mexican man had slammed down his tablet and screamed at me, and I stood up and screamed back, it was obvious that the meeting was over. The sheriff stood up and thanked them for their time, said we were leaving, and took me by the arm and ushered me outside. Here, Jason experienced what many victims of rape go through, where it is made clear that not everyone is willing to pursue justice on behalf of the victims. However, for Jason, someone would be willing to do something about her attack, just not in any way she could have expected. I apologized to the sheriff and the deputy sheriff and said I just had a real anger issue since this event and I couldn't stand to be spoken to in that manner. And I tried to explain to them and they probably already knew it, but the act of rape is less about the physical sexual act than it is the loss of personal power. You have been stripped of any personal dignity, personal power, or the ability to act in your own behalf. 
And that is the serious problem with the after effects of rape. And so we went back to Alpine and I continued staying in my apartment. I had registered my son in the Alpine School District. I believe he was in fifth grade. And um, my days consisted of staying in my apartment, taking my son to school and picking him up, possibly taking him to sports events. He had made several new friends, taking him to places where they would meet and seeing my therapist. There was someone in Jason's life whom she chose not to tell about this crime. Remember Trey, Jason's ex-boyfriend from earlier? Jason went out of her way not to tell him what happened to her. By the time of this event, Trey and I had not seen each other in months. I had heard that he had gone up to the Midland Odessa Permian Basin. He had gone to work in the oil fields of the Permian Basin, about 250 miles away. And telling him about this event was the last thing I would want to do, knowing that He had probably already heard about it. Trey and I had seen each other a couple of times only since my taking of the job in Terlingua. And both of those times were horrible. He was drinking quite a bit. The first time he was completely unconscious. The next time I saw him, um, he was pretty well drunk, but he came up to me and we talked for a moment. He had tears in his eyes and so did I. It was not a goodbye. It was just basically, the time isn't right. Maybe we'll meet again. And so it had been many months before I had talked to Trey or even seen him. And I had heard that he had moved to the Midland Odessa area to work in the uh, oil fields, which was a huge employer in this area for men to make really good money. And so, as usual, the ranch was in trouble financially and Trey had gone to make money and try to pull the ranch out of debt. His mother's death had cost quite a bit. So I didn't even think about telling Trey or finding him to tell him. If I had known where he was, I wouldn't have told him because I knew Trey. And he was, like most men, sickened by anything like this, any violence against a woman. And there would have been no telling what he would do. So I didn't tell him. I didn't want to tell him. I don't know if he heard about it from other people. I'm sure he did because word travels fast. And once this problem turned into an international incident, then it was in the newspapers everywhere. So I'm sure he knew, but I was out of touch. I had moved into Alpine. I really didn't have much to do with Terlingua. I had quit my job with the post office and, um, trying to figure out what step to take next. The days went by. Seeing my therapist actually was very good to help me try to regain a sense of my power. And actually, when I started to understand that that was really the problem, just feeling so degraded, I decided that I would go to Mexico and try to find this man's family. Jason says this casually, as if it's a totally normal thing to do. 
And of course, Jason was very comfortable going to Mexico. But to simply up and go personally investigate her rapist in this way, in another country, takes serious courage. That's just part of who Jason is. I knew I had to have a job. I uh, didn't have a single clue about what I should do with the rest of my life, where I should go, or anything. So some good friends of mine had moved from Terlingua, the owners of the Via de la Mina, had moved to a small town about four hours away from Alpine. And their son and my son were best friends. They had grown up together there at the Via, and both of the boys were riding little dirt bikes, and they were just good friends. They invited me to come and live there. So I was making preparations to do that because I, I really didn't know what else to do. I couldn't keep my mind on trying to decide what I should do. As I began to slowly think about my next steps, it dawned on me that when I gave my statement, I described the way this man looked, his features. And the one striking thing to me about his features uh, was his eyes. And when I said that, Billy said, that's because he's from such and such town. He knew exactly where he was from. He said back in the day, people, Chinese people settled that area of Mexico. And inhabitants there today, many of them have that eye characteristic and I'll bet that's where he was from. And so now that we knew his name and knew where he was from, I decided that I should go to Mexico and try to find his family and find out what kind of person he was. How much education did he have? Had he ever done this before? And I talked to a girlfriend who was very fluent in Spanish and nothing was forthcoming from the officials in Ohinaga. Uh, day after day, I waited for a call from my sheriff to tell me something. Uh, had they set a trial date? Had they arraigned him? Had anything happened? And nothing, nothing had happened. He was sitting in a jail cell in Mexico, and that's all. And so I decided, well, I'll just take things into my own hands and I'll go to Mexico with my friend. I'll go to this town where he's from and search for his parents. And so without telling the sheriff, I did that. Friends kept Noah for a few days. I had about three or four days I could be gone. And my friend and I drove into Mexico. This little town was not too far from the capital city of Chihuahua. And so the little town he was from was another couple of hours, I think, away. And we arrived there and started asking around. It was a small town, just like Alpine. Everyone knew everyone. And um, at the restaurant, we found a waitress who knew this man and knew his family. They had grown up together. So we found out where his mother and father lived, and we went there. It was a small house. One of his parents was standing outside, his father, I believe. We walked up and gave him our names and said, we'd like to talk to you about your son, Refugio. And he said, oh, 
my God, what has he done now? Jason was certainly not Refugio's only victim. Her suspicions about Refugio in terms of him raping other women were proven correct. And uh, told us to wait a minute while he went inside to get his wife. She came out already looking distressed and um, we told her that he had been in trouble with the law in Texas and that he was in jail in Ohinaga. And we just wanted to find out more about him. Had he gone to school? And no, they told me he had gone to second grade. As we talked to them, they were both saddened at this news. And the statement his father made to me was, he was always a disappointment. And being a mother myself, that really hurt my heart because I know that if your own parents consider you to be a failure and a disappointment, how horrible that must be for you, for the child to try and overcome that. And so I was starting to feel sorry for him and they told me he had been in trouble in Mexico years before that he had spent five years in prison in Mexico. And I asked why. And the father said he had raped a judge's wife. So I asked for the name of that judge. He gave it to me. It was someone in that town. And um, we thanked them for the information, told them we were very sorry, and we left. I think we went back to the restaurant and uh, asked the waitress there to find a phone number for this judge, which she was able to do, and I called him. Well, actually, my friend is the one who spoke to him since she spoke Spanish. She told him what had happened and why we were there and why we were calling him. We wanted to know if his wife would come to Texas at our expense and tell the law enforcement there what had happened to her. The judge was adamant. They were trying to get over this incident themselves. There was no way they would come and talk to anyone in Texas. If it ever went to trial, they would not testify. They didn't want to have anything to do with it. This had happened in front of her two-year-old son, and they were all just now getting past the event. No matter how much I begged or pleaded, he would not relent. So there went my prospect for having someone else to corroborate that this was not the first time this man had done this. And I didn't know where else to turn until my friend said that she knew this official in the city of Chihuahua. And I can't remember what his title was, but he was a fairly important official in that city and in the state of Chihuahua. And she called him and made an appointment for us to visit with him. So we left the little town where Refugio had grown up and we traveled back to Chihuahua. We got there and met with this man and she started speaking to him in Spanish. And I guess her Spanish sounded really good to me, but it was not really that good to a native speaker and he just put his hand up and said why don't we just talk in English 
And so I was able to tell him what had happened and why I was in Mexico and why I was looking to find out more information about this man. He, he looked stricken. He was very apologetic and said over and over how sorry he was and that most men in Mexico would never think of doing such a thing. And I, I tried to assure him that I didn't blame all of Mexico for what had happened. Mexico, the country, had little to do with that horrible night. It was his doing alone, his choices alone, that had done this. This man assured me that he would do everything in his power to try and resolve the matter, as he said. He said, I can work through official channels and try to get him released or we could do something else. He did not make clear what something else was and I didn't ask. I just said, I really want him to go to trial whether it's here in Mexico or in the United States, he should stand trial for what he's done. Do something else. What does that mean? Living on the border as long as I have, my guess would be that he would put together something that was extra legal outside the law. He would maybe take a bribe and give it to the jailers and this guy would go away or they would kill him. This happens frequently on the border and everybody knows it. I had a friend, an acquaintance really, who was a drug dealer. His friend had bought marijuana from people in Mexico and sold it in Brewster County. And uh, he ended up gone. He, he couldn't be found for over a year and uh, he had just seemed to disappear. His father was fairly prominent here in Alpine and all kinds of searches were made. Eventually, law enforcement was taken to a body in Mexico. I guess it hadn't been a year, but it had been long enough that this body was so decomposed that uh, he could only recognize his son's hair, and he had been killed brutally. There's a different system in Mexico, of course. Every country has its own system of justice and every country has their own cultural system of how to deal with things and so mexico's system is if you've done something wrong if you're actually a cop and you're being an informant they're going to kill you but they're going to torture you first and this boy had been so anything is possible Anything is possible, and probably in the United States, for all I know, I don't run in those circles. But with enough money, you can get anything done that you want done. And I assumed that he meant he would find out what it would take to get this man out of jail and take care of it. So uh, that is why I stressed I wanted him to go to trial. I did not want him to be killed. In researching this story, this general notion of problems that get solved unconventionally one way or another within the insular border world seemed to float around in the stories we continued to hear. Well, my talk with the official in the city of Chihuahua 
ended amiably and he told me that he would be in touch with me. I gave him my telephone number and he said, I'll call you in 10 days. So that was a very specific date that he had given me and we returned back to Texas and I continued my routine of sitting all day in my apartment and taking care of my son. It was by this time obvious to me that I could not financially keep paying rent for this apartment that I needed to go back to my home. And so that's what I did. I took my son out of that school, re-enrolled him in the school interlingua, and we moved back to our house there. And that's where some of the terror, the hypertension that you have, it was like every night I'd go to all the windows in my house, make sure they were locked. I put new locks on the door made sure the door was locked, made sure the outside door to the patio was locked. It was a whole routine of checking everything and making sure that I was as safe as I could be, checking my gun. Was it loaded? Yes, it was always loaded. And uh, I got a dog. During the course of the events, I asked him, why, why did you choose me? What is it about me? Why did there are other women. Why did you choose me? And he just looked at me and said, you don't have dogs. And so I realized how important it would be to have a dog. And I got one wonderful dog Christmas. So there I was still without a job, but at least my expenses had been decreased. And I went into town one day to buy some groceries. And uh, I saw Billy Pat's daughter walking toward me as I was walking into the store and she had a big smile on her face and said oh I'm so happy for you thank God and all of this she never really said what and she hugged me and she said oh it's just wonderful and so this was such a departure from the usual encounters I'd had since everyone in the county knew who I was now the looks I usually got were those of pity and despair. It was horrible to have all of these looks of, oh, we're so sorry. So her demeanor was so refreshing and wonderful. I said, what? What's happened? And her smile began to fade. And she said, oh, you haven't heard. And I said, no, I haven't heard what? And she said, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I can't tell you. Just go to the sheriff's office. Go right now to the sheriff's office. So I said, okay. My heart beating wildly, I walked a few blocks over to the sheriff's office and went in and sheriff said, I'm so glad you're here. He had a big wide grin. I was just getting ready to call you. And I said, what's going on? And he took me into his office and sat me down and said, is this a picture of the man that kidnapped you? And he put a photograph, a mugshot, in front of me. And I said, yes. And he said, well, we got him. Seemingly miraculously, Refugio was indeed in the custody of the Texas authorities. How? How had he suddenly, magically, gone from fully in Mexican custody to the custody of Texas lawmen? You'll find out on the next episode. I'm Paget Brewster, and this is Borderline. 
Borderline is a production of Voyage Media. The series is based on Jason's book, Borderline, A True Story of Courage and Justice, available on Amazon. A link is in the show notes. You can help support Borderline by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or anywhere you're listening. This helps spread word about the show. And subscribe now for future episodes. When 27-year-old Gretchen Fleming leaves a West Virginia bar with a former police officer on a winter night in 2022, she's never seen again. Diligent investigators close in on an ex-cop with an unlikely story and an unsettling reputation in a recent episode of the Unsolved True Crime podcast, Last Seen Alive. Last Seen Alive is a true crime podcast researched, written, and hosted by crime analyst Leah Owens. Cases covered include disappearances, homicides, and suspicious deaths, all of them unsolved, and all of them in need of tips from the public. Recognizing the right piece of information can sometimes be the difference between a cold case and resolution. Last Seen Alive exists to bring public awareness to cases that need it. Listen to Gretchen's story and more than 100 other gripping mysteries, as told by a working crime analysis professional. Find Last Seen Alive wherever you listen to podcasts.